वेलकम टू सिंटॉक द सिंटॉक इज अराउंड द टेबल टुडे डिस्कस द लिमिट्स ऑफ मैथमेटिक्स विल थिंक अबाउट मैथमेटिक्स एंड वॉट इट कैन एंड कैनॉट डू इज मैथमेटिक्स द की टू रियालिटी आर नेचर्स लॉज रियली रिटन इन मैथमेटिक्स Why are axiomatic systems self-limiting? Did mechanization precede mathematization? Is mathematics autonomous? Might certain social, psychological and other phenomena be mathematical? Might some mathematical facts be true by accident? Where does physics get the maths from? Does reconceptualization of geometry play a pivotal role in advancing mathematics? And what is the future of mathematization and computation? We are pleased and privileged to have three sin talkers with us here today. Professor Rajesh Gopakumar. He is a theoretical physicist with an interest in mathematics and philosophy. He is from ICTSTIFR in Bangalore. Professor Shyam Prasad Mukherjee he is a retired professor of statistics from University of Calcutta and Professor Babu Thaliyat he is a professor in the Center of German Studies in JNU New Delhi his particular interests lie in theoretical philosophy So Babu why don't we set the ball rolling with you uh, by wearing the historical lens a little bit and uh, looking at the entire notion and concept of mathematization and what its journey has been did something precede that conceptually uh, what is the rough arc like let's just draw a 3 4 minute sketch and we'll see uh, what else comes out of that yeah the um, the historiography of mathematics mm-hmm. if you trace the origin of mathematics in various cultures like uh, greece uh, china and india you find this invariably mathematics evolved out of philosophical speculation so in the origin philosophical speculation speculation sure. so mathematics was a form of speculation speculation not in the sense that we understand speculation a philosophical speculation is always a comment on the reality right so it's more seriously a taken a guess about reality um a more rational guess on sure. reality so the um, take the greek tradition mm-hmm. uh, the great philosopher plato and how he uses mathematics uh, in his philosophy and in the pedagogy so the platonic academy the major subjects were music geometry and astronomy right. uh, i would say all these subjects are mathematical so right. even the music that plato inherits from the pythagoras right the uh, arithmetic foundation of music now obviously geometry is mathematical yeah and astronomy is a mathematical science so then students without any geometrical knowledge were not admitted in the platonic academy that is uh, well known apart from that how plato uses mathematics in various ways but was astronomy dependent on geometry even then 2000 years ago yes uh, that is a necessity out of uh, the theory of knowledge mm-hmm. because uh, 
on on earth you have objects mm-hmm. that objects of knowledge mm-hmm. uh, but in the cosmos there are planets mm-hmm. and free space sure so invariably the construction of the movement of the planets and uh, the uh, other forces and all so geometry played a very important role in astronomy uh, from that age sure okay you know. but then plato uses uh, mathematics not just in this context i mean uh, something to explain in the cosmos or the astronomical relations or the constellations and all he uses mathematics to explain the theory of knowledge is one of the epistemology one of the major theoretical foundations of philosophy uh, inaugurated by plato for example in timaeus he uses the a very simple mathematical um, form uh, or the structure to prove the a priority nature of the knowledge mm-hmm. yeah. and in politeia the republic and uh, he discussed the status or the ontological status of mathematical forms uh, in this in a hierarchy from the uh, shadows of fake objects to objects and mathematical forms and the ideas so the so giving it a somewhat pure character giving it a somewhat a priori character making it somewhat it's autonomous not independent just, it's uh, it's actually uh, somewhat closer to the ideas but not purely ideas sure so the mathematical objects have a very a special ontological status mm. why plato was so obsessed with mathematics because the forms especially the geometrical forms uh, are final you know they cannot be reduced to fine other forms what do you mean by that uh, so a geometrical form would be a circle or a line or a plane or a circle mm-hmm. or a right angle sure it's in the origin itself is a final form so the plato was a philosopher who was quite obsessed with that eternity so because he was targeting the eternal forms which are the ideas in sure. heaven so it's always a progression from an imperfect worldly reality to an eternal um, reality which he really speculates so what is mathematization then because i mean as of now it seems like a little bit of a self contained universe of course you're bringing in the element of uh, linking it to theory of knowledge which is understandable what is the meaning of mathematization the uh, the mathematization is a process that connects with something which is purely speculated mm-hmm. and something which is real and existing so that's that's what i want to say mathematics has a, a position between between the so called images of eternal ideas in the world uh, which for plato very primitive in the sense that uh, they are not eternal they are they are not really ontologically stable mm-hmm. and the eternal ideas like uh, the logos and the good the good as the absolute eternal and the most important idea and where are the mathematical forms in between and uh, these forms are a priori obviously a priori mm-hmm. but then the question arises there itself are they real so that's the problem right so that cave uh, example that plato gives sure. uh, in politeia that discuss this problem what are these objects of mathematics uh, are lines real or plane or so where circle? do we stand today after 2000 years uh 
I don't think we haven't made any progress. That is philosophy. Mm. So because these questions, <laughs> you the, you can't really make any progress. But still, we have made great progress, uh, in a maybe in a dialectical fashion. So that uh, so I just want to give some idea of what actually happened in academia and later with Aristotle. Sure. While. Aristotle was trying to reverse the Plat- Platonic. Oh, so, what did Aristotle do? And then we'll maybe uh, go in to one example. Other. I can I can explain. Please. Uh, the proto form of analytical geometry you will find in Plato. Mm-hmm. So, Plato, obviously a philosopher of a priori forms. Sure. So, for Plato, the point, for example, yeah, that point is the origin, yeah, like in Descartes' Origo, yeah, and the movement of the point creates a line. And yeah. the movement of the line creates a plane, and the movement of the plane creates the volume and the, the three, space. three dimensions, the space. Yeah. So everything produced or created out of an a priori foundation. And Aristotle reversed the whole order mm-hmm. from the actual reality, from the phenomenal reality, mm-hmm. from the space, the end, the limit of the space is the plane, mm-hmm. the three dimensional space. And the limit of the plane is the line, and the limit of the line is the point. So it is the reverse order. It is abstraction. So by with Plato, it was an analytical production a priori, and for Aristotle, it is more of an abstraction from the reality into the realm of mathematics. Sure, sure. This sure. differentiation is so important, and what happened afterwards in this interplay of Platonism and Aristotelianism in the early medieval scholastics or the late medieval scholastics, scholasticism and the early modern, early modernity. Uh, for example, the analytical geometry, and that was a remarkable. Uh, development uh, after 15 uh, centuries of synthetical geometry of uh, Plato and Aristotle and the concept of infinite space and most of the discourse happened in the medieval scholasticism based on mathematics were almost eliminated, that means stopped through axiomatization and the main tool of axiomatization were mathematics with Descartes and Newton. Sure, sure. Now we'll move forward from this as we come back again to you and think about maybe the the mechanical side of things a little bit. Uh, but as we go to you, Rajesh, if you, in the manner in which you practice it, and we'll start from there and maybe go to some conceptual notions a little bit later, um, is there any tension between the more Aristotelian or the Platonic versions as Babu's pointing out? Is it theoretical construction of one layer over the other and is it is, does it progress like that or or how does it apprehend reality how does it uh, impute reality from where it is I think in physics uh, the mathematization process uh, has uh, been one of uh, progressive abstraction mm-hmm. uh, and uh, it has uh, uh, starting from Newton about whom we'll probably go back sure. to uh, but starting from Newton till current day theoretical physics one has uh, viewed reality through uh, much more uh, sophisticated mathematical lenses which seem to be appropriate uh, to understanding phenomena at scales which are far removed from human scales. Uh, I think a lot of the reality or experiences that even Newton studied or people before him studied were 
at the human scale, perhaps a little bit more at the astronomical scale. But the scales we are currently exploring are are so much further off. For instance, we are looking at things, uh, the smallest scales being probed are uh, about a billionth of, uh, 10 billionth of the size of a nucleus, uh, an atomic nucleus, which is already about 10 orders of magnitude smaller than uh, a human scale. So you're saying that very fact necessitates a tool or a technique uh, like mathematics? Uh, the it necessitates mathematics of an increasingly abstract kind uh, and an increasingly less uh, 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 less uh, visual or less uh, sort of uh, so in tangible what sense kind. Do you use the word abstract, Rajesh? Is is it simply to say that it's the invisible, unseen? maybe non-empirical, non-experienced only in that sense. And if for some reason, as human beings, we existed at those scales, would that mathematics be as straightforward as the physics of large bodies that we may do? Yeah, so uh, I think Babu referred to the abstraction of uh, lines and planes from three-dimensional reality. Uh, but uh, there are... Uh, further levels of abstraction where you can generalize the notion of space to not the physical space but an uh, but a sort of an auxiliary space for instance quantum mechanics is uh, structured around uh, uh, a mathematical uh, space which is in its simplest form what is called a vector space but more technically a Hilbert space sure. uh, and so the quantum mechanics describes nature in terms of objects that sort of live in this more abstract vector space. Uh, so the notion has progressed beyond the, uh, it's a sort of a further carrying further that notion of abstraction that uh, he was mentioning the Aristotle having initiated. Uh, uh, so, uh, so it's in that uh, sense uh, we need quantum mechanics to describe uh, anything from the atomic scale downwards sure. uh, and uh, we cannot visualize them in terms of points or we cannot visualize them in terms of moving objects but which what about we the do. other end of the scale Rajesh then at the cosmic scales uh, uh, there are uh, there's a new kind of geometry that comes into play. For instance, at the very largest scales, uh, which are several times the size of the Milky Way we are currently observing and measuring, uh, uh, their uh, geometry is determined by Einsteinian geometry of space and time. So it is not the classical Euclidean geometry we are talking about, but uh, what would be called a Riemannian geometry or a curved space-time geometry, which again requires a further level of abstraction from the Euclidean geometry. It's a generalization of the Euclidean geometry, but in a way which is less, vis I mean, less easy to visualize and is captured in more precise mathematical or algebraic form, uh, but uh, Einstein's equations govern the uh, e evolution of the universe at the very largest scales, and it's a geometric equation, uh, but, of a, but a geometry of a much more... Uh, uh, of a more uh, removed kind compared to the uh, conventional geometry we study in school. And are there similarities in methods and formalisms in different, in mathematics of different dimensions? 
for example, if, if you are highly proficient at the quantum levels, does it in any way equip you to do things at the cosmological scales and vice versa, if you know what I mean? Uh, at some level. Or are these re reasonably independent or autonomous? The, the specific mathematical tools that I employed in these two particular cases are a bit different. One is uh, the mathematical theory of Hilbert spaces or vector spaces. The other is the mathematical theory of Riemannian geometry. Sure. But uh, they are uh, both advanced uh, mathematical bodies of knowledge, which were developed in the 19th and early 20th century, uh, uh, which are now a part of any theoretical physicist toolkit uh, or training. Uh, so in that sense, uh, a modern theoretical physicist uh, would uh, would be uh, trained in both these topics and uh, have a fam familiarity with them. And at a certain level, being able to do one gives you the ability to at least uh, tackle the other. Uh, they require similar levels of abstraction. And, and does thought. it surprise you, Rajesh, that mathematics is able to explain reality? That it, continuously surprises me. I mean, it, it's a, it's as a famous physicist Eugene Wigner said, the unreasonable effectiveness, effectiveness. of mathematics in describing uh, physical reality. Yes, uh, and uh, it it is amazing that things which are squiggles of uh, uh, pencil on paper uh, somehow get reflected in... But it says something about the world, right? As opposed to about mathematics. The, the nature of the world must be yes, a certain uh, kind. That, uh, there are, uh, there, uh, there, there, there are uh, if you want to be lyrical, sort of hidden harmonies in the world, uh, which, uh, which are uh, not apparent to the naked eye. But uh, So when does mathematics break down for you as a physicist? And when, it, when, when I say break down, I mean it in the sense that you know that mathematics is going to be of no help here. Does it happen at all? And, and it's just a hypothetical question. Because obviously the other, other situation that might arise is that you come to some kind of an impasse and then the mathematics follows several years later and you know that, so let's just leave it as an open question and it'll get solved later, hopefully. Or are there situations where you just know that mathematics has reached its limit and... Uh, so, in some of the current explorations in theoretical physics, uh, it does feel as if you're pushing the boundaries of mathematics, of current mathematical knowledge at least. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, as a result, uh, practitioners of theoretical physics have had to invent new mathematics or at least uh, sort of enlarge current math uh, current day mathematics generalize it in ways that professional mathematicians have not yet done but uh, but uh, there has so been you have an to come exchange. up with their own mathematics yeah there has been a very fruitful exchange between mathematicians and theoretical physicists in that uh, uh, the mathematicians then take up the notions that theoretical physicists seem to find natural and try to... Such as what? Uh, such as what? So, uh, such as notions, uh, the, the notions I can immediately s uh, say, uh, which are familiar to me, are uh, things which are called quantum geometry right. uh, or quantum... A stringy geometry in some cases. This is the notion that at the quantum level, when you go to, when you 
uh, when you try to put together the very large and the very small that I talked about earlier, uh, Einstein's theory with quantum mechanics, then you need a sort of to change definitely geometry, the Einsteinian geometry in a way which is compatible with quantum mechanics. And in doing so, you have to... Which is the the analogous struggle of trying to integrate gravity. uh, To a theory of quantum gravity. uh, That is one of the uh, holy grails pursued by Einstein. Well, uh, Einstein uh, uh, tried to unify gravity with other forces, but modern-day theoretical physics has progressed uh, uh, beyond and is and there are candidate theories of quantum gravity in which seem to require a generalization of the notion of geometry uh, incorporating right. the subtleties of quantum mechanics uh, uh, so it, that's an example where the boundaries of mathematical knowledge are being pushed uh, in conjunction by theoretical physicists and mathematicians. Uh, mathematicians uh, realize that there but, are but, interesting but do you, mathematical do you hit, structures. Do you hit absurd ends, dead ends at all? Because I, I think the picture that you paint is, I think one gets it, but it also feels a little optimistic, not that it shouldn't be. Um, that, well, we are at some kind of a juncture and we come up with our own mathematics. I mean, are there situations where you know that you'll not be able to come up with the mathematics or for some reason you've taken an absurd turn somewhere I, I, I know it's self-consistent, so it's unlikely that you would suddenly end up realizing that 10 years of physics or maths is wrong. It's, that's not the sense in which I ask that. It may well be that uh, there are, uh, to to address uh, these concepts of quantum mechanics at the very smallest scales, uh, the mathematics needed may be a non-existent to be beyond human comprehension uh, uh, or C, take a very long time for humans to arrive at. Uh, We don't know a priori whether it's A, B or C. Uh, One uh, lives with an optimistic uh, feeling that uh, you try to make as much progress as possible. It's, uh, I haven't seen any signature of an absurd kind of an impasse uh, in the sense that there is... What about paradoxes? I mean, aren't there situations where you run into paradoxes and they just stay there and are paradoxes just resolved in the long run or there's some kind of absurdities? Usually paradoxes are are stimuli for uh, for the development of the theory which uh, leads to... Uh, sometimes new paradigm shift. In fact, quantum mechanics came about uh, because of the paradoxical nature of the existence of atoms, which was in conflict with the Maxwell's laws of electromagnetism. Uh, But uh, quantum mechanics successfully resolved that paradox. Similarly, the relativity revolution resolved uh, similar paradoxes. Uh, So there have been um, uh, traditionally... Uh, used to sort of go to a different level of development. At the moment, while there are certain seeming paradoxes in black hole physics, people view them as a key to the understanding the quantum nature of gravity. But no one seriously believes that these are irreducible paradoxes that uh, are there to stay. Sure, sure. Why don't we journey to you, Mukherjee? Uh, how do you look at 
mathematics is it is it some kind of a way of reasoning for you um and how does statistics lie in that world uh and what is that interplay between statistics and mathematics for you where are you on some of the questions that we're discussing well uh, given the early developments in mathematics mm -hmm. trying to explain the physical reality besides also thinking of something not uh, immediately related to physical reality mm -hmm. we could possibly establish some connection between mathematics and logic that's interesting in fact uh, barton russell once said that uh, uh, mathematics can be reduced to logic didn't use the phrase can be derived from logic right right so it can be reduced to logic that doesn't imply that uh, it can be derived from logic and since you were talking about mathematization yeah which um, is something like an extension to me in a very simple mundane way an extension of quantization or right. quantification right what were being quantified earlier could be uh, objects and their properties yeah objects being defined in any manner yeah their movements their functions and so on but the mathematics was not confined to only those objects and not confined to objects about which um, we talk about mathematization so mathematization uh, is not to be seen as simply uh, application of mathematics in all its facets mm -hmm. whatever could be mathematized uh, conceptually by people who wanted to explain certain phenomena around them mm -hmm. they wanted to mathematize mm -hmm. they got some success and that way they wanted to have more mathematization more in the sense of uh, possibly using um, more developed mathematics or trying to use mathematics in more and more areas where objects were still to be explained their behavior their properties were still to be explained their mathematics could be brought in and this was done through as you rightly said mathematics as a way of reasoning right which is something akin to logic i shouldn't say logic is just uh, reasoning but then if i take for the time being so what is logic uh, logic is not out for us on that but <laughs> logic is no doubt um, related to what he called i mean um, abstraction in some sense i mean logic could be a tool to abstract truth behind some observation right. some experience some experiment um i can't really define logic that's okay. in a formal way hopefully we share about... an intuition about it so it's like <laughs> hopefully all of us share an intuition about what logic is so that's fine yes we do have intuitions not formal definitions always to be taken unequivocally sure and uh, then i do remember what russell said as i told you uh, he further said that uh, logic uh, is something like uh, the youth of mathematics uh -huh. mathematics is a manhood of logic uh -huh. very telling yes in the sense that it does admit that mathematics was known earlier than logic <laughs> because uh, logic is the youth of mathematics yeah so definitely mathematics was born as a child earlier and um, mathematics is the manhood of logic so logic has fully developed 
mathematics can embrace that and even can go beyond that. And it's very interesting how you make, in a way, we can think of this as a triad between reality, logic, and mathematics, right? Because um, so eventually for something to be mathematizable, uh, it has to be logical, roughly speaking. In fact, that way, I would say that the most difficult thing at one point of time to mathematize was um, the human thought process. Right. And if I remember right, the first book written by the self-educated mathematician George Bull was Laws of Thought. Right. Right. Subsequently modified the title of that book and said that Laws of Thought on which are based foundations of probabilities. So that way, Thought was the most difficult subject to be mathematized, and Bull was the first person to attempt what he called a mathematical analysis of thoughts. So what is your intuition on this, Mukherjee, is what is not mathematizable? Where can mathematics not go? The question is not should, the question is cannot go. And you know, clearly there may have been a point in time 2000 years ago when if you threw a rock, you did not think of that as a mathematical Situation, you didn't know that it had a trajectory, a certain kind of determinacy to it. Uh, so, in that sense, something like that has become very, 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 very predictable or if mathematizable. Mathematization simply means I'm enabled to a treatment through mathematics. Hmm. Then the answer has been indirectly told by uh, Rajesh. In the sense that uh, maybe that in that case we need uh, more, more developed mathematics. <laughs> that could provide an answer to everything becoming mathematizable. So in other words, are there parts of nature which are not logical? Um, as of now, as we understand today. Yeah. In and, the long uh, run. Pardon? And as of now. Hmm. So you, you, you refer to the psychological aspect and the nature of thought. Um, right. Bull's laws of thought definitely made a transition in the process of mathematization. But uh, as I said, mathematization is not the whole... Uh, object of mathematics sure is not the whole um, theme for mathematics sure is not the whole target for mathematics as well sure so we need not really mathematize other entities mathematics can still flourish by itself alone that's fine that that has been doing pretty well let's let's talk about different modes and ways of reasoning is there something interesting between deduction and induction reasoning and takes place well okay I can come back to that. But reasoning takes place in what you call the conscious state of mind. Okay. Think of the subconscious. Think of the semi-conscious states of mind. Their reasoning does not immediately come. Reasoning is not definitely entrenched in semi-conscious or subconscious states of mind. You can sure. talk about reasoning when you are thinking about the conscious state of the mind. But then we can dream. We can imagine. Yeah in our subconscious or semi-conscious states of mind. Yeah. They are not immediately amenable to reasoning yeah. and definitely not easily amenable to mathematization. So I'm thinking of uh, the subconscious or the semi-conscious states of mind. I'm thinking of those thought processes beyond what Boole could anticipate. Yeah. Boole could provide uh, a mathematical analysis of thoughts that way, possibly limiting himself to thoughts in the conscious state of the human mind. Yeah. But since we were talking of psychological aspects of uh, the universe, we can definitely talk beyond the conscious state about subconscious and semi-conscious states also. 
and their thoughts can arise by But your again, dreams you could, you or imaginations. You could argue that they merely happen to be the domains for which we don't have the mathematics or the tools today. At least these. I'm not sure whether those which are also in the conscious state of mind, thoughts associated with the conscious state of mind, these thoughts can produce entities which might not be right now uh, mathematized, might not be amenable to mathematization in the near future. That's why I again uh, recall what Gop Kumar said, that uh, human mind may take a long time to possibly answer those questions. But as of now, they might remain outside the ambit of mathematization. So firstly, uh, products of thoughts in the semi-conscious or the subconscious states of mind, they are right now not in the realm of mathematization, right. not covered by mathematics. Right. And even those which are the output of uh, thoughts in the conscious state of mind may not be all covered by mathematics or mathematization. Sure, sure. Where are you on this, Babu? Is there, where can mathematics not go? And is there a way of, uh, I want to go to the other domain that we left uh, a little bit unexplored in the beginning. Did, 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 did any form of, I don't know whether reasoning is the right word, what preceded mathematization? Can, can one think of a question in that, in that sense? Well, the, uh, the historiography of mathematics, so if mm -hmm. you observe that, I mean, of course, I'm not claiming that, that you can derive everything from the history, but then uh, there are certain tendencies uh, in mathematical speculations or mathematical intuitions mm -hmm. as compared to philosophical intuition, I mean, it's very general, or the mechanical intuition. Mm -hmm. So as um, Rajesh and Professor Mukherjee pointed out, mathematics always had a different function. Right. Uh, as, uh, say, uh, what is philosophy after all? Philosophy uh, can be defined in various ways, but primarily it's uh, an attempt or a struggle with the reality, a struggle to explain the reality is an ongoing struggle. It yeah. has a very long history. So, uh, within the context of philosophy, and the science also tries the same, mechanics, for example, optics, for example, biology, every scientific discipline has its own struggle to interact with the reality and explain the reality through a process of axiomatization that is reaching the final justification, yeah. uh, reducing to the absolute finality. Yeah. And in that process, mathematics played a very important role, especially in the early modernity. And let me continue with what I have said earlier. It's very interesting if you observe the medieval scholasticism where Aristotle dominated. And the major discourses were like principium individuationis, the principle of individuation, very ontological arguments. And the existence had a primacy over the knowability. That's the point. Right. So that is established through the Thomas von Aquinas and all. Right. You know? So you cannot question the existence. Right. Yeah. And uh, whether you know it or not, you cannot question because it starts from the existence of the God and the soul and all. But that had an influence on science. They discussed many existences which cannot be explained. For example, void, the origin of time or the limit of space, the infinite infinity, the infinitely large and infinitely small, etc., etc. And impetus, the protoform of inertia. So all these are impetus, yeah. Uh, impetus, yeah. Uh, and use the Latin that impetus, impetus, yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, whatever. So the the point is when the discourse is focused ontologically more on the existence 
there is no end to the discourse because the phenomena phenomenon itself is an aporia right so the discourse has By to be aporia, a aporia you mean it's some kind of a contradiction a puzzle a puzzle, puzzle. Uh, the classical aporia defined by uh, aristotle is uh, you have no way out you are right. thinking and uh, you reach a point where you you don't know where to go right yeah at that helplessness is an aporia right. and <laughs> almost all the dialogues of plato have you experienced that rajesh aporia we always experience that <laughs> no yeah, it is mathematics also this is what was uh, the uh, impetus uh, if i may use it for uh, the incompleteness theorems of godel the fact that there are statements in logic or set theory which uh, lead you to a paradox or an impasse when you uh, i think the original statement there was this uh, uh, all cretans are liars i am a cretan uh, that is an example right. of it's actually uh, explained in the metaphysics right. in the third book that uh, the book of aporia so but the aristotelian argument if you cannot solve this problem in the thinking that lies in the object hmm. but that uh, uh, was reversed in the early modernity mm. because that was a epistemological turn with Descartes. Mm. So the aporias were never ending. The discourse, there were 300 years of debate over the course of impetus. Mm. But then with Descartes and Newton, a new necessity uh, established in science because we have to complete the discourse, axiomatize, find a finality and construct the entire science out of that. Right. And the best example would be uh, after 300 years of discourse in medieval scholasticism, from Thomas to Scott to Sokham to Suarez, Descartes simply states in an axiom, just explains without any causal explanation what is an inertial movement. Right. And inertial uh, state of uh, both static and dynamic inertia. So that's like the starting with axioms. Starting with the axiom. And Newton does it even brilliantly in Principia. Mm. Uh, uh, the first law, the the law of inertia. And by the by, the Newton is most important in this aspect, because the before writing Principia, the claim of Newton is uh, that he has mathematized the Keplerian laws, and not just from Kepler, Robert Hooke, Christoph Wren, Huygens, and many others. Right. Uh, especially from Hooke, for example, the area law and the shape of the ellipse. The yeah. elliptical orbit they are yeah. from Kepler, yeah. and the inverse square law was proposed actually by Hooke. Yeah. yeah, but the but the claim of Newton that he is the kind of uh, the great scientist who invented not invented but axiomatized uh, yeah. through uh, math mathematization. Yeah, so the the, the point is uh, there is a mechanical intuition given to uh, Newton. What do you mean by mechanical intuition? The intuitions of Kepler. And the, so the, the intuitions of how body moves in space is that uh, what how you... the planets move in an elliptical orbit mm -hmm. uh, that Kepler, of course, the dominant. Planet. And you use the word geometry a few times and space. Is there something fundamental between how we conceptualize geometry and branch out a birth of new forms of mathematics? Do you see? Things of that sort in your discipline, in, in, in your area, Rajesh? Do you see that in yours? Has there been... Uh, no, the, uh, there is a clear difference between, at that time, the celestial and the terrestrial uh, mechanics. Mm -hmm. Because on the Earth, you have to deal with real objects. Sure. And all the experiments of Galileo, and uh, uh, you know, the uh, to test the uh, inertia, and also the falling of objects of different weight and all, and that leads to the 
law of equivalence, uh, equivalence sure. principle by Einstein, with Einstein. So uh, in the space, the problem is uh, the bodies move in free space. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course, there is gravitation and speculatively there is ether and all. But but then the the scope of mathematization or geometry, geometri- you know, geometrical representation is more in the celestial uh, physics. So that's why the astronomy was always a product of mathematical reality, more than the terrestrial uh, mechanics. The challenge was then the terrestrial. Uh, no, that's mechanics. fine. I think the question is that does the nature of mathematics change every time the nature of geometry changes? Uh, yeah, I would say the nature of geometry change even. The, our understanding of reality changed. Right. And I just want to give an example that's brilliantly given by Erwin Panofsky, how the synthetic geometry that prevailed all these centuries mm-hmm. replaced or supplanted by the Cartesian analytical geometry. Sure. And uh, in fact, paradigmatically. So that was a time where Bruno and others started speculating over infinite space, homogeneous space. And early it was... Analyt- uh, synthetic geometry with aggregate space. Right. And even the dimensioning was uh, following Aristotle. It is not just uh, in three dimension, it was in six dimension uh, uh, above and below, friend and uh, behind, and right and left. Sure. So it is all, all, all the way confining the objects, limiting the object. And from that, the infinite space evolved. And that necessitated a geometry which is analytical geometry and the absolute space of Newton. So are there other parallel notions? Are there parallel notions of scalar and vector, parallel notions of what might happen? At You were making this uh, point earlier about Hilbert spaces and the Riemannian, Einsteinian kind of space. So are, are different kinds of mathematics uh, essentially tied to or highly coupled with different kinds of geometries where they operate? That may be too simplistic, I get it, but it's just to get the discussion started. Uh, yeah, so geometry is a very central part even now of mathematics, uh, and but geometry, the term has evolved into much more, and uh, in some sense, the Hilbert space, the geometry of abstract Hilbert spaces and geometry of Riemannian geometry can all be broadly thought of as geometry, but they are of very different natures. And uh, and, uh, so as mathematics evolved, uh, this notion has increased. So uh, starting from analytic geometry, one uh, analytic geometry has developed into algebraic geometry. There is differential geometry. uh, And uh, uh, so they are uh, different... uh, ways of capturing geometry, I would say, Uh, uh, different aspects of geometry that, uh, uh, for instance, projective geometry, which was developed, was very important in the development of painting. The the notion of perspective Perspective, uh, came about with the development of projective geometry also. And so it it has influenced, uh, it's true that it ha- the developments in geometry have influenced also the way humans perceive things or try to sort of uh, uh, their, their notions of space have evolved with the corresponding uh, notions of mathematics. But uh, mathematics has a very non-geometric 
aspects to it as well. Sure, uh, of course. So, uh, and which have been developed more and more. Algebra, uh, analysis, uh, yeah, logic, all of that. Theory, is. which is, has, an, a has a geometric aspect, but uh, was originally proposed in a purely algebraic way as uh, this, uh, about, as uh, capturing symmetries of equations uh, and uh, similarly just the property of numbers, uh, integers, number theory and similarly probability and uh, the notions uh, associated with that. Uh, there are uh, very highly developed uh, non-geometrical aspects of mathematics as well. How do you think of this Mukherjee? Do you think of, I mean, of course a lot of these conceptions of mathematics are very pure uh, is there an empirical side to these things? Can can one think of mathematics in an empirical way at all? Uh, initially, mathematics would be definitely something which is not bound to only experiences or experiments. Right. It was independent of experience in some sense. Yeah. But then that mathematics, which is um, independent of experiences, uh, was gradually found to be not effective in explaining even real-life phenomena, not to think about uh, outputs of dreams or imaginations. <laughs> and uh, that way, this uh, but what about the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics was being also questioned. Right. In fact, the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics in explaining even physical reality has been left as something like an enigma. So this enigmatic... Uh, effectiveness of mathematics in explaining the real-life phenomenon is definitely uh, something which will baffle somebody to understand the role of mathematics in explaining everything. We shouldn't uh, try to develop something called the theory of everything. I mean, no philosopher... Is that foolhardy? Theory of everything. I get it. Is it foolhardy to try and develop a theory of everything, theory for everything? Uh, use the strong word foolhardy or not. Well, uh, is it, I'm is a bit it? skeptic about uh, the, the possibility of developing a Where theory of everything. That, oh, that's a very interesting observation. I would fully agree with Professor Mukherjee. Mm -hmm. a, I always see the philosophical problem here. Uh. We unknowingly presuppose that but assume that the reality is a kind of unified entity. Right. The reality is so diverse and ap aporious. How do you know that? Uh, that I want to refer to the uh, refer to the mechanical, uh, the history of mechanics. So back to this mathematization. So the protoform of even the early modern philosophy was mechanical philosophy by right. Descartes and That's fine. Uh, sure. Law, Law, John Locke and Newton and others. And then uh, optics, classical, so the time of classical sciences and mathematical sciences. So that mathematization was like when Galileo says, the book of nature is written in the language of mathematics. And uh, do, you, do you agree with that? Do you agree with Galileo on this, Mukherjee? I mean, there are certain aspects which can definitely be mathematized, but not the whole entity. So that what is would your, how, how do we get our arms around this nature which is written in the language of mathematics? So when this? we say the laws of nature are written in the language of mathematics, of course, when we do it for physical reality in balls moving around, or at least a lot of phenomena can be mathematized to a very, very large extent. Right. That's very true. That's very true. But, but why, are... why are some things not mathematizable? Why are we skeptical? And I don't know where because Adesh and Babu to, are, are have, You have to confront many things which are not to be called laws of nature. Sure. In the sense that whatever happens in nature need not right now be taken to be guided by a law of nature. Sure, that's the question in a way, isn't it? 
like what are the sorts of phenomena that are driven or undergirded by laws yes i would say that uh, the presumption that there are laws of uh, there is an assumption that there are laws of nature that there are regularities there are patterns there are there are uh, things that you can capture in finite way uh, about nature i think it is that aspect that is being called a law of nature and then uh, but that is i think a strong assumption that yes, there are yes. aspects of nature that can be captured by such laws so you would think of that as a strong assumption it is a priori a strong assumption there is no reason when you see the but chaos the last, around you over the last 300 to 500 years we have i mean of course we, if we had started over that strong assumption we've kind of dis, you know it has been a spectacularly successful, successful assumption in the sense that it has uh, one has been able to expand the ambit of that assumption to wider and wider domains uh, uh, which is of course very good uh, which is very uh, impressive uh, but uh, uh, but, uh, but uh, i i wanted to just focus on the aspect that uh, in a sense when you say the laws of nature is written in the language of mathematics at some level uh, that's the, the 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 focus often shifts to the mathematics but i think the focus should be on the laws of nature <laughs> no, because that's a good point. the, the uh, having if I you totally have the laws you. of nature i think it's it's in a sense mathematics is a natural language to capture those laws uh, the 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 meaning of laws in that sense uh, in mathematics is so have you yeah yes for example one talks about uh, the response to a stimulus yeah as uh, proportional to the extent of the dose of the stimulus yes will you call this a law i mean the fact that uh, the response given by an individual to a stimulus applied to him or her depends on the dose of the stimulus is this to be called a law simply saying that response depends on stimulus will that be called a law of nature well you know i mean you know there can be different forms of this right you can have a law a theory a theorem an equation a formula and uh, of course all of these are differently rigorous and they uh, have not gone beyond saying anything simply saying depends on I've not proceeded further to say it depends inversely, directly, proportionately. I, I would call it a law. I would call it a law. Maybe not go to the extent of calling it law of nature, but for any contextual ecological entity which is interacting with its the environment around it, if you were to say that it would react to a stimulus in a proportional way, I would call it a law. But maybe you have other instances in mind which go exactly opposite that. That's why you posed that question. It could be a weak law, but then nothing beyond a weak law. <laughs> and that by itself is a strong assumption. So, okay, let me ask you a different question. Have you been surprised, Mukherjee, in instances where you did not think that, let's say, statistics, which is a domain that you've thought about for many, 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 many years, ends up being effective and you you are surprised that hey this this seems to display fairly robust stable um tendencies or results or phenomena which which you wouldn't have thought of otherwise more recently when you think of a distinction between inductive logic and deductive logic mm -hmm. you will find that pure mathematics mm -hmm. which is the hardcore of mathematics as such can be regarded in some sense at least as a prolongation of deductive logic right. whereas and that's independent of experiences right on the other hand 
if so you look going at from general general formulations to more general from uh, formulations or to specific kind of pronouncements in deductive inference the conclusion that you make that uh, is warranted by the premises yes and the premises include the axioms yeah not experiences yeah so that way if you start with axioms and then the axioms themselves are sufficient to warrant a particular conclusion that was deduction it does not and this is true for all pure mathematics that's a good point but look at there are different uh, phenomena which you observe repeatedly you can gain experiences you can make use of them to explain why that phenomenon occurs to that extent with that frequency and so on and there what you do you make uh, some repeated observations and put the findings of these observations into the premises besides the axioms and the postulates that are necessarily there and then you get an inference which is not warranted by the premises so this it's is axioms by the premises. plus data pardon this is axioms plus data yes so it's they, not just they, axioms they cannot they cannot even prove conclusively the inference they can provide support to the inference so guaranteeing a conclusion and providing a support to a conclusion are two different outcomes right deductive logic guarantees the outcome inductive logic fails to guarantee it there should be a little bit of uncertainty at least if not a big amount of uncertainty associated with any inductive inference but even then you can try to be as robust as possible you can try to minimize that probability of not really being able to prove that on a single location even which is obtained by inductive inference to as small a value as possible and therein lies uh, the strength of uh, probability measures of uncertainty and even statistics which uh, makes the premises stronger by including what you call data right in fact data is a greek plural noun which implies data means singular sure. which implies whatever are given to you right so whatever are given to you to study a phenomenon or to reach a conclusion should be called data yeah and you should make full use of that not yeah. merely going by axioms and postulates yeah so whatever are given could be definitely some experiences some observations results of some experiments you have carried out if you put them into the uh, premises part of the inference then the inference is inductive inference no doubt it can't be guaranteed but even then Uh, it can be made as robust as possible by definitely weakening the assumptions putting in more of relevant data ensuring better quality for them so are you are you are you suggesting or saying or implying that there could be a kind of mathematics which is inductive in its character definitely yeah. and that includes as i said that becomes not fully empirical sure it's something like semi empirical right it's not entirely based on experiences it does take advantage of axioms postulates other assumptions and so on but definitely does justice to the data to the experiences it's not free of experience and what would the nature be in which domain could it operate can one can one try and visualize it whatever I... you whatever you want to add to mathematics to make it semi empirical in my language has to be again deduced through mathematics right so you cannot be completely detached from deductive logic you can't be completely detached from mathematics that way if you want to add something to pure mathematics to allow the scope for inductive inferences even that augmentation has to be done through deduction and that way you take recourse to again 
what you call the prolongation of your yeah, maybe there are elements of learning does this make any sense to you rajesh uh, i think you have in mind the application of in statistics that is i guess very much the way mode you would function in isn't that right in the semi empirical way that you take in uh, there is a, there is the real world data out of which you're trying to find some patterns or some regularities and you you have to uh, you have to uh, to take that into consideration at the same time as uh, your mathematical machinery that you apply uh, to uh, arrive at some inferences on uh, whether the for instance the uh, in statistics there's the notion of independent variables versus dependent variables so independent variables uh, when you look at a probability distribution or non independent variables uh, the inferences you would make would be very different uh, and uh, but whether or not some particular set of variables are dependent or independent depends on their origin and there is so that is uh, so you would have to uh, i think there are many uh, many uh, sure, areas sure. where you would apply that way of uh, you would need to apply that way of thinking what i meant was you have to accept uncertainty mm -hmm. you cannot definitely have the uh, vision that you can explain with certainty everything that you observe so given this uncertainty which is very very basic in physics as well to explain that uncertainty one way to explain uncertainty would be to make mathematics uh, somewhat semi empirical in character <laughs> so is and, and you know this is common intuition rajesh but is is uncertainty hardwired into nature or it it's it's merely something that we don't understand at this moment in time and i know you refer to quantum mechanics several times so one kind of knows the prevailing bias but it still poses that question yeah i, I think uh, the the uh, generations that have grown with quantum mechanics uh, have gotten used to the idea uh, at least provisionally that uh, we will we will have uh, uh uh for certain questions the answers will be statistical in nature uh, the outcomes of measurements will have a certain irreducible statistical quality which is not to say that there isn't determinacy there are aspects which are sure. precise and deterministic but uh, there are uh, there there are uh, fundamental uncertainties as well uh, I, i think this is by now uh, there are very uh, there are very good reasons i think to believe that uh, this is the way uh, nature is to the Does it surprise you it is surprising it i mean in, Will it in surprise the surprise people 1000 years later or uh, i i mean I, i people as they say you get used to some things that doesn't necessarily mean you understand them uh, <laughs> you you uh, i see a, a definite role of mathematics in this debate and i would say i mean in a quite reductive manner this uncertainty is again a kind of ghost that appears again and again from the old discourses <laughs> and what actually mathematics did at that time it to create a mask of the mechanical you know phenomenal reality uh, for practical purposes that happened with newton so one simple example is uh, newton was trying to find the mechanical cause of gravity and magnetism and uh, using an experiment that he placed a piece of iron 
uh, on a glass plate and the magnet beneath and it can still move the magnet. So the philosophy at that time was a mechanical philosophy that contradicts the me mechanical philosophy. Because there was no contact? Uh, because there was no contact and then uh, the materiality of the uh, glass prevents any contact right. uh, between these two. Sure. It's clearly an action at a distance. Sure. So Newton then writes a letter to Bentley, who was a master of Trinity College in Cambridge, saying that it is absurd to believe that celestial bodies attract each other or act at such distances. And the same Newton axiomatized and create the universal gravitation. So even he probably did not fully understand no, he, his he, mathematics. He didn't believe in that, but the argument was, <laughs> it's a lot of works done on that. At the level of effectuation, there is no problem in axiomatizing gravitation because it can be represented mathematically. It can be represented in the geometry and in, in the mathematics. But the causal explanation is not necessary. So, but that means... What does that mean? That's so beautiful. Yeah, that means in the philosophical discourse, there is no finality. But in the scientific discourse, there is a temporary finality with the axiom so you can build on it. And many, many axioms are like that, that evolved. For example, the infinitesimal, that uh, calculus, you know, uh, Leibniz and Newton. Interestingly, the Leibniz developed that from the principle of continuity, but his solution contradicts his own philosophy. And then Berkeley, uh, the George Berkeley wrote a wonderful essay, Analyst, criticizing all this logic, yeah, and the differential of second and third uh, grade and all. But then uh, nobody paid any attention at that time because calculus was such a wonderful uh, uh, discovery at, the, at, that, at that time. So you what, don't need to believe in some mathematics to be right. What I want to say is uh, <laughs> uh, when, if you, re, if you work on Kant, the critique of pure reason, so he uses all the examples from the Euclidean geometry and the Newtonian mechanics uh, to prove the a priori nature of the knowledge. Right. So between two points, there cannot be one straight line or uh, the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. And there is a framework, there is a kind of superordinate conduct, which is a Euclidean geometry. And after 50 years, with Gauss and Riemann, with the non-Euclidean geometry, you cannot state something like that. Right. So there is, the mathematics plays the role of a higher context, and even mechanics is subsumed under this context, which is very puzzling for me. That's very interesting. Yeah. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't agree with Galileo when he says the book of nature is written in the nature of mathematics. I would say there is a correlation between mathematical intuition and mechanical intuition as represented in various examples. And one point to Professor Mukherjee, it is so interesting that natural geometry was very central in the Cartesian philosophy mm -hmm. and immediately negated by Newton in the a priorization of Mathematics itself. Sure. And then Berkeley is uh, an essay towards a new theory of vision and all. So Descartes actually uses natural geometry in explaining certain visual space perception, visual depth perception and all. And when, you, when it comes to Kant, he completely ignores this long 300 years debate uh, by John Locke and Diderot, sure. by Condillac and Berkeley on the uh, visual space perception. Uh, by a priorizing the space. Sp space is a notion a priori. So <laughs> this happens always in philosophy and science, and axioms are actually more pragmatic than theoretical. That's fine. Why don't we spend the last one minute each just trying to think about the future of where 
Mukherjee, maybe we start with you. As you think of this 500 years out, 1,000 years out, 1,500 years out, pick your timeline, but reasonably distant. What are the domains of our life, the world, the universe, the phenomena that you believe are likely to be explained mathematically? What are the limits of mathematics in the very long run? If I take mathematics as something which uh, uh, has the mandate to explain whatever happens around us in this entire universe, then there could be either many entities, uh, many concepts, many happenings uh, left unexplained by mathematics in the near future at least, if not in the distant future. Left unexplained. But, but mathematics has got a different objective as well as I said. If you look at dreams and imaginations, sure. which motivate... Uh, inventions and innovations. Sure. Then possibly mathematics will be able to, in a way, concretize the dreams and imaginations, concretize them. I don't use the word mathematization as such. Uh, dreams and imaginations cannot be completely represented by but mathematical symbols. But dreams have a very non-deductive character, right? They, they don't follow the way deductive reasoning follows. They definitely do not. Even in that area, even in that area, if I differ from Barton Russell's limited viewpoint that it's only a prolongation of deductive logic, mathematics can still flourish there. In terms of developments in the area, what you call fuzziness, we have got possibility theory, credibility theory. Sure. We don't nowadays talk only of probability theory. Sure. We talk of possibility theory, we talk of credibility theory, sure. we talk of fuzzy sets and fuzzy numbers. These can ultimately explain certain things which are not in the area of deductive logic as such, which cannot possibly lead to unique uh, inferences which are guaranteed by the premises. So there possibly mathematics can, can still go That's on. That's interesting. Expanding. What's the future, Rajesh, the very long run? Uh, there is, uh, I, I can answer the question at maybe at two levels. And uh, one is within mathematics purely as a discipline self-contained in itself uh, or in terms of its interaction with nature and uh, the sciences. Uh, I think in in terms of its interaction in the latter case with, uh, in the, with the sciences, I, I, I think that there will be an increasing uh, back and forth and uh, 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 more and more uh, areas of mathematics will need to be developed with because of the impetus from maybe even life sciences uh, in trying to understand uh, complex biological systems and sure. maybe the brain and so on. Uh, uh, so I think there will be perhaps new developments in that direction. But within mathematics as a whole, um, I uh, there is there are usually two tendencies in mathematics in general. One is of generalization, uh, and one is of synthesis. Right. Uh, and so the generalizations tend to push things outwards, uh, and, uh, and things develop, consolidates. In, and then synthesis tries to unify and consolidate in by viewing things uh, to uh, by taking today, things uh, to a further layer of uh, abstraction. So. So even in the 20th century, there was a lot of uh, attempt to synthesize much of the explosive growth of mathematics of the 19th century. Uh, and the middle part of the 20th century, was uh, uh, there was a famous
famous Burbaki program, which tried to sort of put together yeah. uh, mathematics at a very more abstract and general level, uh, but see it as a whole. Uh, but I think once since the 1980s or so, there it's the the uh, the pendulum has swung again back to sort of growing in a sort of a little bit haphazard and tangential uh, and random way uh, in different directions. Uh, but I think once again, there will be an attempt maybe after another 50 years to synthesize all that to uh, even uh, more uh, unified la layer, which will probably be even more difficult to uh, sure. uh, more abstract. And uh, I, I don't know, we may eventually hit the limitations of the human brain and maybe because it will the limits be of the mathematics cannot be independent of our own biological the humanly discovered mathematics but maybe there is increasing collaboration with computational resources yeah. and and their collectives uh, collective collaborations recently there have been theorems proved by a few hundred mathematicians across the internet yeah. in a vast collective way so maybe mathematics will be maybe done in, in much more collective ways and there will be a collective human brain that will try to uh, explore with the help of computers even more uh, distant realms of mathematics. Yes, interesting. Babu, a minute more. I, I, I'm just thinking of like what happened in the modernity, especially from 19th century, the clear di disciplinary divergence between sciences and the uh, mathematics and philosophy and all. So probably we may, we will have to redefine the referentiality of scientific knowledge, uh, whether it is mathematical or philosophical, whatever. The referentiality means how knowledge, human knowledge is connected with the reality. Mm -hmm. There the whole problem of uncertainty comes. And I would say uh, uh, the fact that we are not ready to accept that, it reflects our transcendental ego. You know, that we are in an age of <laughs> transcendentalism. It's not from Kant, it's from Descartes to Kant and further. It's a transcendental ego that we can explain everything. Probably we have to accept the knowledge dictated by the object. And that means we have to accept the uncertainties. Maybe better to live in with the phenomenal uncertainty rather leaving so some the illusionary a priori certainty. So some ghosts will remain in the very long run. Uh, we should live with the ghosts. We should live with the ghosts. Babu referred to epistemology, which is the theory of knowledge. Epistemology deals with origin of knowledge as well as limitations of knowledge also. <laughs> so not to speak of limitations of mathematics alone. Sure, sure. sure. There are limitations of knowledge. But I would just add there's a very important observation those limits in epistemology are actually anchored in ontology also. Sure. Yeah, that what it has to do with the object. It has to do with the object, and the object is the limiting. We are still the object Aristotle. decides what it can what exactly. it gets to know. We are still with Aristotle. We say if you cannot solve in thinking, it lies in the object. But we are not ready to accept that the modern man. Hopefully, some somewhere down the line, that ego will go. So. I but think that's in a, a sense, note. I would say quantum mechanics, uh, Einstein and others uh, refuse to accept this. But the generation afterwards, have, people have live with it. I've been in the sense that that's how maybe nature yeah. is. And I think we they do have, have promising more. applications in future in biological sciences and in social sciences also. Like more and more of phenomena which take place in society or even within the human mind right. are being subjected to mathematization, correctly or wrongly. And maybe that mathematics will provide some clue to what happens inside the mind, which is not, not located anywhere in physical reality, uh, as also in this society.
which of course is more real. Terrific. I think that's a good note to end this on. Thanks to all of you for making it and we look forward to having you soon again. Thank you. Take care.